0: You are about to hear audio released by the Transportation Security Administration's of the events of September 11, 2001 as they unfolded. The audio contains the transmissions of air traffic controllers, pilots, airline employees, dispatch personnel, first responders, citizens, and terrorists.
1: The cockpit is not answering their phone. Our number one is in staff and our five is in staff. I'm going to call from Washington.
0: I in a situation where a learned a possible
1: hijack. What's going on, Betty? Their crap is erratic again. Problems. Are you ready? Betty,
0: cockpit.
1: Betty, are you there? Betty? plane, okay. What? what the 737. Yeah, it what? The
0: world, who are you talking to? Oh, God. Oh, my God.
1: United 175, New York. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a
0: hijack over here, two of them.
1: Jules, is uh, listen,
0: on an airplane that's been
1: hijacked. Things don't go well. And it's not looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you. I want you to do it so happy this time. Uh, same for my parents and everybody. And yes, I just totally love you. And uh, I'll see you next semester. Hi, babe.
0: Oh God, so both towers are now... Okay, now
1: yeah, I got an aircraft to miles east of the White House. Uh, Hello. Crystal City, just north of Crystal City. Stop.
0: Just to the north of
1: your town. Yeah, stop all departures. The Pentagon just
0: got hit. Don't that. God damn it, I can't even protect point NCA. United 93, that traffic you is 1 o'clock, 12 miles eastbound
1: 370. Negative contact, we're looking
0: at United 93. United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center right then. They got tempted to dock. Keep remaining to be. We have a ball of hope. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm. Baby, you have
1: to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. We're 56865. Uh, no, we have a... Uh... I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's concurrent. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his wings.
0: Roger. He's rocking back and forth. Number 5686555, as you stay away from that aircraft, go north as fast as you can. United 93, have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes.
1: When did he land?
0: He did not land. Oh, he's down? Yes, yeah. somewhere up northeast of Camp David.
1: I just wanted to let you know I love you and I'm stuck in this building in New York. There's lots of smoke and we just wanted you to know that I love you always. I come to two world shows you're blind. Lady is too busy in New York. We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. bed. Now, I'm going to die, aren't I? No, 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 no. I'm going to p- die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. We're going to think positive because you got to help each other get off the floor. I'm going to
0: die. <laughs> A new type of war. Sounds what it is
1: All of a sudden, just this big, like, I can't even describe the noise, but it sounded like a a big, oh, like a big, like a big vacuum, like, like something just sucked the air out of the room.
0: Hello, and welcome to A Pixie from Kilmarnock, a program about the people, places, and history of the Northern Neck. I'm your host, Pixie E. Curry. This is the second part of my interview with Lieutenant Colonel Sherry Hill, Sergeant, United States Army, retired. 2021 was the 20th anniversary for 9/11. On September the 11, 2001, hijacked. United Airlines Flight 175 and American Airlines Flight 11 were used to attack the World Trade Center in New York City. American Airlines Flight 77 used to attack the Pentagon in Crystal City, Virginia, and a forced crash of United Airlines Flight 93 in Somerset County, Pennsylvania in a failed attempt to attack the White House in Washington, D.C., 2,750 people were killed in New York, 184 at the Pentagon, and 40 in Pennsylvania. All 19 terrorists died. Colonel Sargent survived the attack on the Pentagon. Here is her story. Talk about jumping out of planes. You know, piece of cake, I have to come to 9-11. Please, just tell me. I want to know first how you uh, became assigned to the Pentagon and, you know, anything and everything leading up to that day.
1: You know, it's funny. Half the people you talk to probably say they never want to step foot in Washington, D.C. military, never want to be assigned to Washington, D.C., let alone the Pentagon. But for me as a personnel officer, I thought... Um, that's the nerve center of the military. That's where it all happens. And if that's where you know, per- policies are made that impact personnel and all that. So I always wanted to come to the Pentagon. My husband didn't quite feel the same way. He didn't mind being assigned into the D.C. area, but he didn't necessarily want to be at the Pentagon. But me, I wanted to be um, at the Hoffman Building, which is in Alexandria. That's where all the personal policies were really enacted. And then the Pentagon is where they were formulated that's where I wanted to be. So um, I had the opportunity. We came to the D.C. area. And I want to say Patrick initially, he he initially maybe went over to a different assignment at the time. Um, Eventually, Patrick ended up as a congressional fellow for Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois. So Patrick worked on Capitol Hill during 9-11. And I worked with a personnel organization called, we call it the DESPER at the time, the Deputy Chief of Staff of Personnel, shortened to DESPER, now they call it the G-1. That's a three-star organization. Three-star general ran that organization. And so we did personal policy within the organization. Personally, my job was to brief what they call the monthly status report, or the USR is at the unit level, unit status reports. But all of those are rolled up throughout the, at the time, 10 divisions in the military, and they come to a head, and we analyze all this data and then brief it to various members of the Army staff, eventually the chief of staff of the Army, at a time was General Shinseki, if I'm not mistaken. My job was handling all those classified documents and preparing the briefing. So we had just moved from, they did a renovation of parts of the Pentagon, and so we moved from where we were located to a different part of the building. We were moving to the new part of the building, which is the part of the building that got hit. So we were being moved into a brand-new part of the building, And with that came all kinds of bells and whistles that we were not aware of at the time. Bells and whistles that saved our lives, but at the time we didn't realize we were moving into a new and improved part of the building with bells and whistles. And so we move into this new part, and I'm segregated from the people that I normally work with because it's like cubicle city, and the documents I handle are all classified. So they stuck me in a very tiny office within a cubicle city in a in a different section altogether separated from the people that I work with they stuck me back in this hole a very about the size of a closet full of safes with all the classified information so this morning started off like any other September beautiful September morning I I say that because every September I feel it and I'm like wow this reminds me that day because it's just a beautiful day beautiful weather and um when people commute to the Pentagon back then, don't know what they're doing now, a lot of us would come in, we would slug or hitchhike into the Pentagon, um, going to commuter lots or, um, or drive ourselves, but take the Metro, whatever we would wear street clothes and then change into our uniforms once we got to work. Um, and so because I had an office, some of my friends would come into my office and change their clothes. Cause I actually had an office because of those classified documents. So, um, Anyways, this particular morning, um, I'm dieting like I'm always dieting, <laughs> so I'm never never quite the size I want to be, so I walk into this cubicle area, which is um, where I'm working now, and I walk past a couple of my friends and have some chit-chat, you know, steal a couple of M&Ms off the desk and all the normal kinds of stuff that I do, and I go take my seat at my desk, and um, shortly um, into the work day, work morning, one of my... Um, colleagues comes in to get a classified document out of the safe um eric brunken and he says ma'am because eric i think was captain i mean ma'am did you hear that a plane hit the pentagon i mean hit the um, world trade center and i was like you know what what are you talking about and he said yeah a plane just hit the world trade center and i said well hold on let me look on the internet and see what i can find so i'm trying to find cnn i'm trying to find information but nothing is working um nothing's coming through So I look up, and Eric's gone. I guess he realizes he's not getting any information from me. And I said, well, let me, you know, I know the general, our one-star general, the one that's closest to us, he's not at work today, and he actually has a TV. So I said, I'm going to go and watch his television. So I um, leave my little office, my little closet office, and walk past a couple of my friends, and I said, hey, I'm I'm going to go over to general, I can't think of his name right now, to his office so I can see what's going on. And as I'm talking, another one of my colleagues puts his finger up to his mouth to, say, to shush me to basically say, I'm on the phone, can you keep it down? And so I'm like, oops, sorry. You know, I tiptoe out of there and, and head, and as I'm getting closer and closer to the general's office, it's crowds and crowds. There's a crowd of people like, what the heck? Why is? It? And I'm like, oh, they're all here for the same reason, to see this TV. So I walk into the office, literally as soon as I walk in the office, second plane hit the world trade center and then a gas you know just went through the room like wow this this can't be an accident that's the second plane this can't be oh my god w- what now and we're just all just kind of just you know standing there looking at each other like what what the heck is going on i step to the phone to call my girlfriend who's back in that area that i where i work and say hey you need to come up here my girlfriend karen said karen that another plane just at the World Trade Center. You need to come and see this. They're showing it on TV right now. And then I hung up the phone. And so now I'm leaving that office so more people can file in and see what's going on. And and then I run into my boss, who is new on the job. Her name's Deb Fix, and she was brand new on the job. My old boss, Reggie Jordan, um, has left the job, but he's still in the building. So he heard what was happening. We all just kind of ended up at the same spot. He came up to talk to her to say, this is what you need to do now. And I was very annoyed because I was trying to get back to my desk. But they stopped me to say, this is what we need to do. You know, there's a, a cell in the, in the basement of the building, you know, uh, operation center, and we're going to do this. And start talking technical of what we have to do because, again, we're the people that hold the personnel, the strengths, the numbers of what we have in the Army today. So they were trying to say, you know, we need to get down there. This is what we're going to have to do. And as he's just talking about trying to school my new boss, what needs to be done, all of a sudden just this big like I can't even describe the noise but it sounded like a a big like a big like a big vacuum, like like something just sucked the air out of the room. It was very odd. It wasn't like a bang or a boom, it was like a big like a big sucking sound. Of course everybody just stopped and like what was that? And then um and then you I was right in front of a window, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what how come the window is not broken? How come I don't have shards of glass everywhere? What this is weird. What what's happening? And um, and then the ceiling tile started to fall, and um, and then somebody I know Sergeant Frazier was like, uh, you know, we fell to the ground, and I, I said, oh my god now they're you know now they're coming after us i in an instant knew that what happened in new york was connected i had no idea it was an airplane but i knew it was connected and um and then sergeant fraser said we need to get the f out of here (laughs) i'll never forget that because we were dumbfounded we were laying on the floor the group i was with i don't know what everybody else was doing and when he said that it was like it snapped into reality because i thought i was this is how i'm gonna die I knew it because I saw what was happening in New York. Now it's happening here. This is how I'm going to die. And my life flashed before me and I accepted it. This is, this is, this is how it's going to be. And then he said we needed to get out of there. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this is not all that's going to be, I guess now I need to do something. So it's kind of strange to, to not do anything seems a little easier than to do something. And, um, so now I got to do something. So I get up and, um, and we're trying to figure out how to get out of there. And, um, as it turns out, now our new part of the building has fire doors. So everywhere we go, there's now a wall that wasn't there before. So we're like mice in a maze trying to get out of there because now there's all these firewalls all over the cubicle area. So it's just total chaos. Um, I guess the good Lord is who kept me from turning around and looking behind me. Excuse me, because I found out later had I looked behind me. I would have seen fire and all kinds of stuff that i did not see i did not see that and so we're making our way and you could tell we were getting further away from the damage because we were running into people that were like why y'all running why y'all look like i mean they were these people were in their offices like why y'all coming barging through here like they had no clue um and um and we made our way To the center court and then we could look back and that's when we saw the billowing smoke and it was like what was that what was that and we're trying to you know just a bunch of people in the center court of the pentagon trying to figure out what is going on total chaos and i'm looking for my friends calling them by name trying to figure out you know because the people i was with were people that i worked with because it was the office area where i was so i have familiar faces all around me and um, they just started, you know, shuttling people, go here, you know, no, no, go there. And they're trying to get us all the way out of the Pentagon, out of the center court, because now there's word that that was a plane, that there are other planes, and, and they just didn't know what was up. So now they wanted us to move from the courtyard and to completely get out of the, out of the whole complex. So now we're leaving the entire complex, and, and we're getting word exactly where the plane hit. And then we realized when they said it was near the helipad, that's where our boss's office is. So instantly, um, you know, my concern was for everybody that I work with, because I know when you're in the boss's office, you can see the helipad. So it's like the three-star general is like, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's where the plane hit. Um, So we evacuate to the outside of the building, and I don't know how much time passed. Um, I ran into an old boss who actually told me that it had hit near the helipad. And then all of a sudden, here my husband comes running up. And um, as I stated, he was at the, um, the Capitol. And when he heard what had happened at the Pentagon, he tried to reach me by phone. And none of the phones were working. And so he jumped on a shuttle from the Capitol to come to the Pentagon. And he happened to catch the last shuttle that was running because they stopped running all shuttles. He got to the Pentagon and happened to run into people that knew me that was able to say, Sherry's okay, and, and pointed in the general direction of where I was. And so here he comes in a suit with his briefcase. I mean, he's not looking like he's a vacuum. The rest of us look like crap because we've come through some stuff and we have nothing on us. We don't have a headgear. We, we don't have purses. We have nothing. And, um, and so... You know, just in a state of shock, like, what the heck is going on here? So they keep pushing us further and further away from the building, um, walking with a group of people. One of the young ladies that I was with has a sister back at the Pentagon that she's trying to call. Uh, She's trying to call her parents. None of the cell phones are working. Everything's jammed up, and, and we're just getting pushed further and further into Crystal City, the Crystal City area. And um, every time we see a plane fly above, we're, like, thinking that this is, you know, an errant plane or we don't know what's going on. And, um, and then some friends drove by and gave us a little more details because they were headed to the super, super classified area and all of that. So um, we're just making our way and not knowing what's going on. Then, um, try and then trying desperately to make phone calls because, you know, Mom and Dad are two and a half hours away. But I'm thinking there's no way that anybody's going to think, as big as this building is, that this is the part of the building that's going to get hit. What are the odds of that? And um, so we continued and um, kept leaving, and then we found out that the buildings were collapsing, and um, and they just just kept getting worse and worse, and um, we were told to just try to get out of there. So we um, walked a long way because the metro stations in the vicinity weren't working weren't running and so and we had um dropped our car at a commuter lot so we eventually made it to a metro station that was running which was like the braddock road station which is i don't know how many miles we walked it was like something from the apocalypse just oh what'd you see on tv people just walking and walking and walking in, in a daze and um the smell of the uh the, the fumes from the plane it just it just was a nightmare and um and we made it home and um I guess Pat must have had keys to get in the house or something. And then my my parents um, had been trying to reach us and couldn't reach either one of us. And so they thought they needed to come and and get our daughter, so get Samantha. So they actually um, drove. And I feel so bad understanding what was going through their minds, but I just couldn't reach them. And eventually all reunited at the house. We went to get Samantha from uh, aftercare program. They had Dismissed all the schools, sent the kids home, but she couldn't come home because she goes to an aftercare program. And um, so she told me later that there was only a couple kids there, and she was like, well, "When are y'all coming to get me?" And um, we're trying to keep things normal, you know, but there was nothing normal about it. They had told them a lot, um, and so then the night, then the rest of the nightmare began because um, there's phone calls throughout my organization. They're trying to get tabs. I was considered missing because like I tell you, I, wor- I didn't work with my people, so I wasn't with, quote, my people. Um, and so I was on the missing list, and so I had friends who saw the list and, you know, were praying for me because they they thought I was missing. And, um, but there were a lot of people on that missing list. And, um, when we came back, we didn't go to that building, of course. We went to the Hoffman building where I wanted to work initially, and they made Space Force there. And when I got there, and, um... Saw the extensive list of all my colleagues that were missing. It just, uh, just it was unbelievable. Um, the people that I was looking for names, the people that I was calling out uh, on that list, and um, and when I said those people were missing, they they were they were gone because um, they weren't. They were not alive any longer. They, um, you know, and um, as it turns out. The uh, young lady that I was walking with, her sister did perish on 9-11. Her, her younger sister, she was trying to get a hold of, she she perished in 9-11. My girlfriend that I had gone back, that I had called to come back, she perished um, 9-11. Where I worked, that little hole that I was in, nothing was left of that place. Um, of that place, we had... Um, My girlfriend Karen, we know, survived the initial blast, um, and she was with another friend of mine who survived, and she did not, but most of the people that worked there were not at their desk for one reason or another, and I already told you why I wasn't at my desk, Um, but um, I know Karen came out of that office because I saw her, but she went back in. I didn't see her go back in, but she went back in, and then that's... And, that, and the plane landed underneath us, basically, the body of the plane. So, and the fact that it hit the part of the building that had just been um, reconstructed with all this material to withstand this type of a blast um, is why, how we survived. That window, had it been a window in any other part of the building, would have shattered. But it was built of some type of material that was meant to buckle. And, um, and had that plane not come in at an angle, it would have taken us all out. But it kind of nosedived and landed underneath us. And, um, and this building this is where you see the big gash. That's where our offices were, right on the other side of that. And it bought us time to evacuate. Um, but yet we lost just under 30 people in my organization alone. Everybody in the front office, um, everybody's gone. The three-star general, his sergeant major, his aides, um, the young man who was working on his computer that day, the secretary, if you can imagine, having a front office and everybody gone. It was like, I think, maybe two people that were in a meeting that survived, but it just was um, unfathomable, and um, we went to funerals and memorial services for days and days and days and days. It just um, was just non-stop, non-stop. And as far as I know, we have one person who was never recovered. None of his remains were ever recovered, but everyone else they found. Um, enough of them to identify them at least. It's a day that, uh, you know, obviously, I'll never forget. And I, I struggle with how to, to, to remember it because I don't want to forget. I think it's a uh, disrespectful to forget, but I don't want to remember to the extent where it depresses me and just, and I become um, fixated on it. So I'm just all over the place. You just never know from year to year what my reaction is going to be. This year was particularly hard because of the 20th anniversary, it was constant and, um, Everywhere I turned, there were memories and reminders. And so, um, yeah, very grateful um, these last 20 years to, to think of my life of the last 20 years, um, you know, to have with my family, you know, just beyond grateful.
0: You are listening to an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Sherry Hill Sargent of the United States Army, retired. Colonel Sargent survived the attack on the Pentagon on September the 11th, 2001, and her husband, Major General Patrick Sargent, retired, was able to find her after the attack. She struggles with the memories of friends and colleagues who lost their lives that day and the knowledge that there were some things that could have been handled differently. Hesitant about asking you if you would talk about it as you say, you know You don't want to forget things like that. You don't want to bring up those feelings and I'm very grateful that you would Share this with me and I know it was it was difficult for you to do that. There's not enough uh, Thank you that I can say to you because you were willing to do that so thank you
1: oh you're welcome for your prayers yeah i appreciate your prayers i i had um yes an outpouring um of support and the number of people that reached out and um
0: and again i was
1: just amazed because i was thinking what would make you think as big as this building is that it would have impacted me in the way that it did and um i mean yeah the odds just the odds, but um, yeah. And then my parents would would have the foresight to say, you know what, we need to get up there because um, we don't know what's going on. Yeah, it was it was just unbelievable. But the, you know the, you know again the. They hit the one part of the building that could withstand that impact. Just a miracle. Um, I, I <laughs> hate to say that I have a lot of them. Um, you know, bitterness is, I won't say a lot of bitterness, but there's bitterness because I feel very strongly that we should have evacuated the building immediately. I mean, just like you said, Tixie, we're under attack. As soon as that second plane hit, it was obvious. It was like something is going on. And I just feel like we should have evacuated immediately. I know that's, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking and whatnot. Um... But had they done that, you know, obviously there would not have been those deaths in the Pentagon because we would have evacuated. Um in my particular office, like I said, we it is the three star general lost his life. We had privates that lost their lives. I mean, it touched every demographic, every race. It just was it was very bizarre when you look at the faces. And um and I took those faces with me. When I went to Iraq, because I deployed shortly after that, and um, you know, I know we we really know now that Iraq, you know, it, it wasn't Iraq; it was Afghanistan, the main um, focal point for this attack. But I, but just knowing these the sacrifice these people made, you um, people little old ladies in tennis shoes coming to work in the Pentagon. You know, I had friends that said, you know, you went on. You know, they work for the Pentagon. What did they expect? I actually had somebody say that to me. I was like, are you serious right now? You think this little old woman in tennis shoes, this 50-year-old woman, thought she was in danger coming to the Pentagon every day? No. I don't think so. I don't think people thought that way at all. Personally, I again, I tell you, I'm scared of my own shadow. I felt that way because planes flew over that building all the time. And I thought, because we're in a, a, you know, next to National Airport. I felt like they flew too low. I thought somebody was going to accidentally hit the building. That's what I thought was going to happen accidentally, not on purpose, but accidentally. Um, You know, and um, when I was stationed at Fort Sam Houston, I had a unit that worked out of Oklahoma City. They were in that building when that building was hit. So I've become cynical to a certain point. I don't put past, anything past what can happen. It's, um, I won't go down that road. But anyways, um, so I took that picture with me because, um, you know, I'm in the military now and now I'm having to deploy to a combat zone for the first time in my career, not knowing what was going to happen. And it was a reminder to me that, you know, God spared me that day, you know, for a reason. I don't know the reason but I'm gonna keep living until I don't. And so, you know, the reminder was, these people are gone, you know. You still have the ability to live your life. And, um, you know, if you don't survive this, this combat zone, you know, so be it, but you had more time than they had, you know, you just, you know, it's just, you just never know. You know, I, I came out of that experience um, broken.
0: When you said that you looked up and there was Patrick coming to you in his black suit and briefcase, that he found you in all that chaos and that you all was able to get back to your own home where you was able to get your your child. Yes. And she probably, how old was she then? Nine. So she had some, some understanding then. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I For some reason, I assumed that the schools were going to shield the kids from what was happening. And, um, you know, so it's better off not to disrupt her routine. You know, I overanalyzed that stuff. That's what I thought was happening. But instead, they released the kids um, because parents were coming to get them. I, of course, we couldn't come get her. But, but so she watched all our classmates leave one by one by one. And now the end of the school day comes and now she has to get on a you know, little a shuttle to go to her after programme which was at Kinder Care and it was only a handful of kids going that way. So she's still like, Okay, where are my parents? You know, everybody else is, you know, been picked up by now. And so now she's really in, in you know, few people at Kinder Care at this point. And so, um, we're back home now and again we're thinking, this is chaos. We don't know what's going on. There's a lot of conversations I'm having with colleagues about who they saw last, where so-and-so could be. Just It was not a, a pretty picture, you know, and um, a lot of crying, a lot of emotion, and I didn't really want her around that. I thought I was shielding her from that, um, but we went to go get her closer to a time that we would have gotten her on a normal day, and she was kind of like not happy with us because, like, what took you so long? but again we thought we were keeping her in a routine and but as it turns out she was very well aware of what was going on in DC they told them and she was aware and she was afraid that something had happened to us and um, so she was concerned and um, all that time you know i could have picked her up you know probably a couple hours i think we probably were home just a couple of hours and um, and like i said as the evening went on just watching that building burn and on the phone all night with um, confirming that I'm alive and where I saw people last and and all of that and um and it's nothing like fixing nothing like walking in the building and having somebody look at you like they've seen a ghost mm. and that happened to me and the young sergeant major said oh I thought you and then she just caught herself and stopped and I just smiled and said I know. Because a lot of us, we don't, some of these people, we don't know their names. You just know black, female, major, what, you know, some, you know, You try, people are trying to describe who, who, you know, who we're looking for, who's gone or whatever. And, um, yeah, so, yep, it was, um, uh, difficult, difficult. And we finally, um, we got back to work. course, nothing was the same, and, um, as a matter of fact, the work that I was doing changed dramatically. Um, I thought it was quite disrespectful. It's like, the general's gone, now we're going to start doing things this way, and they just revamped and just took that opportunity to do all kinds of stuff. Um, but, um, anyways, I wasn't there much longer when I was reassigned to Germany, and, um, course the unit I went to in Germany was a unit that was going to Iraq so um, then I ended up on an airfield where I had airplanes and helicopters flying overhead all the time um, and now I have a fear of planes and flying objects and all of that so
0: yeah Samantha So, do you and Samantha and Patrick, do y'all talk about this sometimes? We do.
1: We mostly, me and Samantha mostly, um, yeah, um, and most of the time it's around the anniversary, you know. We have spent, um, some time we've, we've spent at the memorial, um, You know, the strange thing, too, is within the organization I was a part of, the Desper, we lost a lot of people. We also had a lot of people that were injured. And so, rightfully so, they pay homage to those who lost their lives, Um, but also they make sure to include those who were injured in memorials and make sure they're included in any kind of event that's happening. But those of us who fall on the outside of that, those of us who don't bear any physical scars that you can see, you're just kind of out there in the peripheral um, until somebody thinks, oh, you know, Sherry might be interested in going to that. And so one of my friends did think of me, oh, how long ago? This is when Barack Obama was in office because she invited me to a ceremony at the Pentagon where Barack Obama was going to be there. And I was thankful that she thought to include me in that. And Patrick and I went over and we actually met Barack Obama and shook his hand. But typically not included um, in that they you know in the, the fog of all that was going on a lot of the gathering of information was incorrect and when I told you how somebody thought I was deceased they actually had me on leave that day on some of the diagrams that they have developed over time um and I definitely wasn't on leave that day and I tried to get that corrected many times and um you know, we'll see if it ever gets corrected. But um, over the years, I was told as long as I... We received combat pay on that one day. Our leaving and earning statement would reflect that. And so if I was on leave that day, my leaving and earning statement would reflect that I was on leave and I would not have gotten that. And so it was reflected accurately there. It was very important to my father that the record be corrected because his experience is that many black people have gone through life, have experienced certain things, have been left out, because the record didn't accurately really reflect there was no record of them having been there and and in the military there's always something years later we find out there's Agent Orange there's this that and the other and if you can't prove that you were there but there's no record then you are just you know it's your word against everybody else's and the story that I've shared with you as you can tell I've ran across a lot of people that day I mean there was a lot of people that saw me Um. But yeah, we couldn't get that record on the the one they had displayed. They couldn't get that corrected. And finally, and somebody wrote a book and in the book told the same <laughs> wrong story about me. And I talked to that author and he's like, oh, well, I'm sorry. We did the best we could do. Um, when all this happened, I had already left. I was in Germany. So had I been there, maybe I could have gotten wind of things and made sure everything was accurate. But um didn't happen. I was no longer part of the organization. And um, the people that did all the proofreading just clearly didn't recall the impact it had on me. um, And um, therefore, the record is not accurately reflected. If you go to the Pentagon, um, it was my goal to make sure they got it accurate in case they decided to make it more permanent. Right. But the display that I'm referring to is not permanent at all, right? It's still... Looks as janky as it did day one, so I don't know if they're ever going to try to do anything with that. But I wanted to make sure that if they did, that they at least got it right somewhere publicly, because people have asked me, um, you know, shortly after it happened when I went to Germany, you know, people in Germany weren't dealing with this. They were in Germany, so you know, I answered a lot of questions in Germany. I I'm actually had a speaking engagement in Germany, and I, the last thing I wanted was for somebody that heard me to then go to the Pentagon. And see this and say, huh, she was on leave that day. What's that stuff she was saying? It bothered me a long time. And, and it's still to a certain extent that it's inaccurate. But hopefully they'll, they'll have that corrected. My husband, like I said, worked for Senator Durbin at the time. Senator Durbin, um, had I? I think I had met him at that point. I mean, he's a senator, and I don't work with him. No reason to go see him. But he called for me one day. And my boss said, if a senator calls you, you need to go. And I said, yes, ma'am. And um, hopped on the metro and went over, and he wanted me to share my story with him. He wanted to hear from me exactly what I had experienced. And so then he read my story, our story, into the congressional record. So there is a congressional record of our story. Um, So there is that, and he actually gave it to us framed. So we had that in our house. But um I feel that the further we get away from 9/11, the more memories fade. My daughter's very cynical and she reminds me she said, "Mom, people just don't care." <laughs> it's like, that can't be true. She said, "No, they don't care, Mom. They just don't." People like to say, "Thank you for your service." She's as cynical as I am. But um time has passed and and people deal with grief differently. My cousin had a good friend who lost her mother on one of those planes. And she never wants to talk about it, ever. She doesn't talk about it. She doesn't observe the day in any kind of way. That's how she's handled it. So I guess it's just to each his own how they choose to, to deal with it. But it's definitely something that we, we can't afford to forget. Cannot. So many things done wrong, done poorly, that um, we, we just can't afford for that to happen again.
0: And those who have to live with not only the action itself, but the aftermath that continues. Because, right. like you said, they won't fix it. They won't fix it. You're right. I know just listening to you talk about it, it just make me think of Pearl Harbor. As if, no, they wouldn't dare. No, that couldn't possibly happen here. Yeah.
1: It's funny, Pixie, because I just was thinking, I was gonna say that out loud too, that it reminded me of Pearl Harbor, but also in the aftermath. I talked to some of my grandmother's sisters, some of my my grandma sisters, because they're old. I was like, well, how was life here on the mainland after? Pearl Harbor, how did y'all, I mean, here we've just experienced this horrific terror attack. How did you guys go on about your lives? And she didn't really have much to say. I don't know if she was too young or didn't remember, but I was thinking that's the last time something like that has happened. You know, how did you guys move past that? How did you, how was life after that? Because I couldn't imagine us getting back to even where we are today. I I couldn't imagine it. I couldn't. We've come a long, long way. And, um, yeah, shocked that that we've gotten this far. And, of course, whenever I'm stopped and searched and stuff, I might be a little annoyed, but, um, like, it's all about our safety and it's a small price to pay.
0: What advice do you have to give?
1: Well, I think you gave me some excellent advice, which I would pass on, is that, you know, not to give up on your dreams and your passion. You know, sometimes you might have to modify it. Sometimes it might be delayed, but, you know, not to give up on that. I've observed it over and over again. You know, and my family members just not giving up, just you know, sticking to it and um, and overcoming. Being persistent and not taking no for an answer, and so that's what I would say. You have to know, actually, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. I mean, I, I look back and you know those times when I was told I couldn't do something because of my, you know, because I'm a woman or whatever. I wonder if I, had I handled those things differently, what impact they may have. I, I don't know if they would have or not. I mean, certainly times are a little better now than than then. But 1992 to have your boss to say you can't have a baby and be in an arm at the same time. I mean, you would think I was talking 1970s or something. So don't, don't always take no. Push back a little bit, if, as my brother would say. Step up, put your toe up to the line a little bit as much as you can get away with it, and be persistent.
0: I'm glad of your persistence. I read a book by Dr. James Norris, Fight on My Soul, and it's about his dad, Dr. Morgany Norris. Your dad is in that book when he contracted polio. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. The decision, you know, to, to get your dad to a hospital here in Richmond and, you know, how long he had to be in the iron lung and to know that he overcame that to become the man that he is and help to rear the children that you all are so that yeah. you all could raise your children the way that they are. I had no
1: idea. Obviously, there'd be a pandemic and it's um, un- unreal. I had big plans for my first year back here, and um, yeah, but now we've uh, got to keep our distance. And especially <laughs> you and my dad's house, you know, we have a vaccine. You know, had he had a polio vaccine prior to his situation, he would not have gone through. What he went through it was traumatic for my father to be away from his family. A little boy like to be away from his family for all that time, you know. And, but yeah, he overcame. He overcame that, and that's, you know, he instilled that in us big time big time and you look what he overcame it's like how how dare i say i can't you know can't do something can't overcome something when my parents both beating the odds young very young very young parents yeah
0: well i'm going to close out thank you sherry you're welcome virtual hug and kiss to you
1: oh absolutely all right thanks pixie
0: thank you sherry have a good one you too bye-bye bye-bye May we always remember those who lost their lives on 9-11 and keep those who survived in our thoughts and in our prayers. The opening audio clip is entitled 9-11 as events unfold. The video is on YouTube. It was released and provided by the Transportation Security Administration. Music by Robert A. Hall. This interview is dedicated to those touched by the events of September the 11th, 2001. Peace be unto us all. Thank you for listening.